right. We're going to get started. Let's do it. Welcome, everybody. You're here to hear sustainability and spirit. If you're expecting something else, go to your it should be in a different room. Um, this is an exciting program, actually. When Rabbi Wachowski came here, we knew he had a lot of strengths, but some of us didn't know how deeply passionate he was about environmental protection and sustainability. Um, and so through his leadership and a lot of activities throughout the synagogue, we've initiated a variety of programs, this just being one of them, where we brought in an outside speaker to have a chat with the rabbi. Other people could be sitting in this chair and have a chat with the rabbi at, at other times, but tonight it will be Maddie Stanislaus. And I wanted to give you a little bit of background about Maddie. <laughs> So I've known Maddie throughout my environmental law career in different roles that he's had. Mine have sort of still been the same, but his has varied. So let me give you just a brief description of what he's done. And then I have three main topics that I think you're going to hear from him if I know him well enough to, and pay attention for these topics because these are near and dear to his heart. But right now, uh, Maddie is the vice provost and executive director of Drexel's Environmental Collaboratory, which was just established about a year ago and is designed to bring together all of the resources of Drexel University and all of the resources of the Academy of Natural Sciences to do good with projects in local communities. So it's deeply set among those two organizations, which creates an amazing platform for work to be done in a successful way. So Maddie was hired as the first executive director, and again, as I mentioned, also vice Pro provost of the university. But before that, I'll just tick off, Maddie's an environmental lawyer and a chemical engineer. Some people can only do one of those. Maddie seems to be able to do two. Early on in his career, he was the co-director of New Partners for Community Vitalization in New York, which was a basically a brownfields redevelopment organization aimed at providing services to underserved communities as these properties are redeveloped with a big focal point on equity in terms of redevelopment activities. In that regard, he was a board member of the New York City Justice Alliance, and then he found his way into the government. He was nominated by President Obama and confirmed by the Senate to be an EPA assistant administrator, where he served for two years, excuse me, two administrations, um, under the under President Obama's lead. Most recently, he was the director of the Global Battery Alliance, which is part of the World Economic Forum. So if you were to piece together Maddie's background, you can see it touches a lot of bases in a lot of different areas. And he's viewed uniformly as an international environmental thought leader, which is why Drexel was so happy to get him to lead the Environmental Collaboratory. And we're happy to have him here to talk with us tonight in a conversation with the rabbi. But here are the three things to look for. These are, I think, some of Maddie's basic principles that in describing what he's done and what he believes, you'll hear some of this. And if not, you can chastise me later. <laughs> Number one, connecting people to solve local environmental problems. Number two, building trust among diverse stakeholders a very challenging task. And number three, recognizing the importance of reliable scientific data 
as the key to effective environmental decision-making. So don't make a liar out of me, but hopefully some of these, these ideas you'll hear as Maddie describes both the trajectory of his career and what he's interested in doing now. And I'm sure Rabbi will pick up on some of these themes as well. So without further ado, let me hand it over to Maddie. So thank, thank you, and uh, th oh, I will say. <laughs> However you want to do it, it's your uh, Let me stand. <laughs> uh, th thank you for, uh, Mark, for that introduction. I'll pay you later. Uh, so let me uh, stop what I'm doing now and really talk about how I got here. So um, I'll, 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 I'll pick up where Mark uh, uh, stopped. You know? So I think, uh, and I really believe in, in, in my role, is um, at this moment of climate crisis and um, equity crisis, uh, I think it all begins with trust, right? We are in a, in a fractious, divisive world. And I really believe we need to look at how do we build trust in information, uh, trust in data. Uh, if we do the, the second and the third, we then kind of relate to how do we build those solutions and I really fundamentally believe and based on my journey, it really requires the hard work, and the really hard work of setting the table of people who disagree with each other. You know, in terms of a multi-stakeholder process of build authentic real-world solutions that work on the ground. So how do I get here? So I, um, I was born in Sri Lanka. Uh, my family uh, left there, uh, one of only two lotteries to leave that country before the beginning of the Civil War. So we came here before the Civil War uh, began, and a couple of inflection points that got me to what I'm doing right now. Uh, uh, I was doing my chemical engineering degree uh, in New York, and two major events occurred. Uh, the largest chemical disaster uh, in history, killing 10,000 people and maiming another 50,000 people in Bhopal, India. Um, it was the same design of a chemical plant as it was the Institute of West Virginia. But the mechanisms that were in place in the Institute of Virginia for the same incident resulted in 10,000 people and 40,000 people maimed in India and no one dying in the US. So I'll let you that sink in a little bit. Um, the Civil War broke out in, uh, in Sri Lanka and I've lost people in the Civil War. But it threw me into human rights and um, addressing refugee work at a very early age. I testified in Congress at the age of 19, you know, trying to condition all humanitarian aid uh, based on all, all, all aid to Sri Lanka based on um, uh, uh, human rights conditions. So I soon be a, uh, became not a friend of the country of Sri Lanka. You know? So I was disinvited from ever attending. Ever, ever visiting Sri Lanka, you know. So it really shifted my career to, um, to the law because every, all my work on human rights, I encountered these pesky lawyers, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I, I just decided like, I have to figure out a law degree to really kind of engage uh, in, in that sphere. Um, so I went to law school, got a law degree, and I was practicing law in Manhattan at a midtown law firm. Didn't really like the transactional side of law, uh, but I really did wanted to really look at how do I connect human rights with the environment? 
So that's what really set the course of my career. So while I was at the law firm, I did a lot of work with human rights organizations, really try to address what is now called environmental justice, the issues of communities that have disparity in pollution, disparity in disease, uh, communities that are the hosts of waste transfer facilities, uh, the host of uh, peaking generating facilities, which are shoved into the lowest income communities, our communities of color in New York City, you know, I was there during the, the, the bad old times of the Giuliani administration, who frankly exacerbated uh, some of those situations for uh, these communities. So we helped organize a response to uh, these issues and it initially became, how do we stop the worst harm? And so that was, that was okay for a while, but we soon realized that advocacy only goes so far. You know, so we, uh, sought out to how do we rebuild communities with communities at the center, but invite others who are really crucial. So we so we built a table with people who may not necessarily like each other. You know, so we had uh, community-based organizations, community development organizations sitting at the table with J.P. Morgan and Citicorp and government. You know, frankly, some of these people are suing each other, right? And so how we really try to figure out how do we rebuild communities, but look at the issues of how do you underwrite the redevelopment in the neighborhood. But you know, before you do that, you have to build trust. You know, that was like the one really important thing is that we're in a world where it's okay to, we're in these bubbles today. Um, I recently was at the, the climate cop in Egypt, you know, and, uh, and I hated it, you know, and I hated it because it was a great event, but everyone was speaking in their own bubbles. You know, and so I really believe that if we're going to solve the problems, we have to really be intentional about be bringing people together who may not necessarily like each other, who may not necessarily agree with each other. How do we build solutions uh, uh, with, with, with people uh, at the table? So that, that took me to the Obama administration, you know, uh, you know, eight really great years, tough years sometimes. You know, I, I testified in Congress 35 times. It's a really lovely experience. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, but, you know, it was really the opportunity to take all the learnings and really make that and build that into the programs of rebuilding communities. Uh, you know, we, we developed the first climate plans for addressing climate-fueled emergency events. You know, I was a point person on the BP oil spill, you know, and, uh, and really trying to, how do we kind of prepare for what is happening uh, right now? Um, you know, fr fr from there, uh, I had the opportunity to kind of lead the effort with um, the G7 nations, uh, looking at, you know, for the first time, looking at how do we build a, um, uh, an alliance with the G7 countries around decarbonization. It was early signs of how do we look at dematerialization, decarbonization, you know, working with the auto sector, the supply chain, the auto sector, on how can we lead and looking at the examples, some leading companies and strategies for decarbonization. Uh, you know, and from there, um, uh, I'll close with, uh, 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 once I, the, the dark day the Obama administration ended, uh, I decided I did not want to work in the U.S. for the next four years. Um, I don't know why, but. Uh, <laughs> so I, I then uh, worked with, uh, with the World Economic Forum in Geneva and really continue to work on this, this one thing that I, I fundamentally believe. We're going to, so we brought it together some of the largest companies in the world, Tesla, VW, the mining companies, with human rights activists from the Democratic Republic of Congo, academic institutions, to deal with like, these easy issues like child labor in the supply chain, forced labor in the supply chain, but it really requires intentionality. 
really requires bringing people to the table, building the trust so they're prepared to be at the table and really be clear that this is about really developing a solution that works and serves all of us. So um, I will stop there and thanks again for welcoming. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. I, um, there's, a lot, there's a lot of reasons why you're here right now, mostly that you don't know how to say no to Mark. But so thank you. Um, but one question that I want to put to you is why would you take time out of your very busy and impressive life, <laughs> weeks um, to come talk to a group of Jews at a local synagogue? <laughs> one, I love engaging people. Okay. You know, um, I do believe that at the heart of Lobotron, faith is so much important. Uh, in in reimagining the world that we want it to be, right? So I, I think it's really crucial that we have faith and faith-based leaders to do that. You know, during the Obama administration, you know, hidden behind is we, we developed a whole network of religious leaders who had to be the leading voices in neighborhoods to really kind of engage and get people to the table and really help build knowledge. <laughs> So I, I want to pick up on that and ask you sort of a, a triple question, because you've mentioned now sort of local leaders, faith leaders, people. You've mentioned corporations, companies, and you've spent a lot of your time in the government. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the, the roles of business, government, and sort of, I don't know what this, th civilians, mm -hmm. right? in addressing some of the climate issues that we see around us or that you've spent your life trying to ameliorate? Yeah, I, I mean, I think they all must have a role. Um, when, uh, <clears throat> when I was at the EPA, you know, I, I would all I spend so much time with my staff is that, you, you know, part of your role is really communicating why people should care, mm. you know, and, and really, uh, translate science in a way that respects that, you know, ultimately it's the people that are decision makers, right? And, and we, you know, we have to really take, uh, take a view of government as a decision maker on certain things, uh, uh, corporations are decision makers on certain things, and the public are decision makers at a more limited thing, like elections, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, you know if, we, if we look at climate, too often, I believe that climate has been pigeonholed and environment has been pigeonholed to so-called experts, you know, whether it's climate biologists, climate climatologists, you know, you know, climate solutions is an all of society issue. You know, we have to look at the various ways people live in their homes, uh, the various ways they earn money, uh, the various ways they play. You know, it, it climates all of the above. You know, it, it's economic levers, it's health levers, it, it's the homes that you select. So if it's an all of society issue, we have to get everyone at the table. We have to get away from my, my criticism of the cop is that it tends to be a view that, you know, the specialists are going to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. and, I, and frankly, I mean, my view is that um, part of the problem of the uh, the politicization of, of climate in the U.S. is it has been politicized, right? In, and we've not 
brought the solution building to people who are impacted. So I'll give a specific example. I think uh, farming is in my family. My, 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 my father was uh, a dairy farmer in Sri Lanka. Uh, my wife's family was a tobacco farmer in Sri Lanka. I'll tell you what. <laughs> but, you know, farmers were, have, all, have understood and have seen the effects of climate before anybody else. But farmers have not been engaged in a fundamental way in the climate solution building. You know, and we, we've made it this specialist kind of issue, you know, and, you know, if we can't get farmers to the farmers, literal livelihoods are based on the environment. Mm -hmm. Now, we're already seeing production levels go down in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, where you were from. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if farmers are not only have an economic interest in it, but farmers are a huge amplifier of the message, you know. So it's all anyway, that's a long way of saying that it's, it's an all of, of the people issue to, to, to begin identifying problems, uh, solutions to the situation we have upon us. So what do you do or what would you say to us in when we're trying to navigate that issue? And you already sort of mentioned that we have to some extent a limited scope, right? We the um, Jews in the pews, as we say here, right? And, and so we've got a, an amazing sustainability team and we're talking about all the different things that we can do in our synagogue. And even, even the grandest thing that we can think of that our synagogue could do is still relatively minuscule when stacked up against the forces of nature and world and production and, and everything all around us. So what... I, I think we feel this tension and maybe it's just me of, you know, we're going to spend a lot of time focusing on composting the food that we use at Kiddush or changing all of our electrical to be from solar or whatever it is. And, and then also know that that still might not be so effective in the grand scheme of things. And are we losing sight of some of the larger issues as we focus on the smaller? Uh, I don't believe so. I mean, I, I think that, and what the collaborator is really about is like really driving and learning from local solutions and scaling it up. Mm -hmm. I, I believe that's the only way I really we solve these intractable problems. So I think really leading by example within your footprint, that's good to do. Mm -hmm. But also within, uh, within the, the, the circle of who you've been influenced, right? Within your municipality. You know, I really think that it comes at, at a local government level. If you can look at things like, you know, how do we establish the, the infrastructure for really scaling up the EV fleets, right? You know, how do we look at... Um, I'm going to translate. Electronic vehicles, vehicles uh, right? No, okay. <laughs> right. Just uh, making sure. You know, and how, how do we kind of build resiliency now? I mean, I, I think every community is going to have to build resiliency for the impending events that are going to happen over the next 10, 30, you know, 10 to plus years, you know, we're already seeing this, you know, so and how, how do we you know, look at flooding? How do we look at, um, you know, and, 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 you know, engaging in, in terms of solution building with your circle of influence? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, with the real focus in on how, how do we make sure that the most vulnerable are protected? You know, um, because I think the most vulnerable are going to be the ones that face uh, the first impact and the most acute impacts from climate change. Mm -hmm. You know, so leading by example and building those the, the, those those solutions and learning from doing those solutions, I think it'd be highly impactful 
you know, and then you know then learn from there and replicate it. Now, you know, so. <laughs> okay, got it. Okay. Um, I want to. We're we're gonna let other people ask questions as well. So think if you've got some questions. Um, remember, questions are one sentence long and they end in a question. Okay, so it's a funnier joke when Elliot Cosgrove used to say it, I guess. But um, so, can do you want to talk a little bit more about the collaboratory itself because it's fascinating um, and it's in some ways built exactly off of your biography that Mark already shared, but it's also a pretty cool and unique thing. I wonder if you want to tell us a little bit more about why that's where you want to put your sort of chips, as it were. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I was not looking to join academia. It's my first time I've been in academia. I probably more often criticize than academia than I've worked with academia. Uh, you know, I, I believe that, you know, in a world where there's such distrust of information and science, mm. academia has the potential, I'll underscore potential, to really bring neutral expertise to solution building. Um, so I think that aspect, I think the aspect of, you know, Drexel has, you know, I, I talked to President Fry extensively before I decided to take this job is how, how committed are they to really work on on the ground solutions, you know, so, um, and, and, and I think building upon Drexel's history of kind of civic engagement, really kind of working on the ground, you know, so I think the opportunity is bringing expertise in the form of faculty, in the form of students, um, uh, to really kind of one build solutions uh, with local with local partners, but but also I would say inculcate in the the leaders for the future uh, this on the ground solution build because uh, uh, you know the, the Gen Zs want to do stuff and they don't want to wait until they graduate right so we want to be able to provide the avenue to learn now mm -hmm. you know to inculcate the, the, these kind of strategies and build their leadership uh, for the future. You know, so those are some of the things that kind of convinced me to the collaboratory. And so what, what we're trying to do is really bring all of Drexel to really work with external partners in a model that is not extractive, right? I mean, academia has historically had an extractive model, which means academia has gone out and studied communities and published stuff, you know, didn't get consent for publishing it, extracted the data, mm. you know, published it and monetized it. And not really delivering solutions, but that, that is not the model I'm interested in, right? A big academia, <laughs> uh, yeah, behind all of. So that. it's really how do we bring academia in the service of community solution building, not the study right. of communities? You know, so that's very cool. What? How's it going so far? It's great. It's great. You know, and uh, we got a big vote of confidence with some of the major funder to invest in us to really kind of build this out. So we're building out. Um, a Philly-specific uh, climate action plan, really looking at more of a systemic way. Is not only, you know, are we looking at kind of the traditional climate stuff, but what is the the community context? Uh, so, um, what is the context in terms of housing stock? How do we make how the housing um, uh, more efficient? You know, how do we look at really these intricate issues of the application of the various tax credits coming out of uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, particularly applicable to low-income housing? You know, how do we kind of deal with the heat emergency events? You know, heat emergencies are going to be a regular thing from here and after. You know, how do we make sure we protect people from the worst harm? Uh, so there's, there's a growing work about, you know, building in almost an emergency response. Well, how do we protect people in the hardest day? But also how do we diagnose folks 
elderly, particularly elderly and extremely young, for both acute and, and chronic incidents of heat-related events. You know, so those are some of the things we're really kind of, you know, we, we want to deal with the issues of today, issues what communities want to, and then build confidence in that. So building on a fairly specific plan, we've begun a, a statewide effort, working with a number of municipalities, uh, and then early stages about trying to figure out, you know, doing a project uh, that they desire, implementing that, uh, and, and then learning from that. We want to create a, 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 a network of kind of co-learners mm -hmm. uh, and then build those learners out. That's very cool. And the municipalities are receptive. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah and we were starting, you know, there, there's probably 50 municipalities that have some version of a climate action plan. So working with those uh, and show success from there. And I believe even the skeptics, at, at the end of the day, when you look at the economics and you know, done well, uh, the green economy, or whatever you talk, you know, when you talk about the installation of uh, utility scale clean energy, you know, if you talk about, uh, you know, some of the the, the battery technologies, you know, that it has an environmental rate of return, and it has an economic rate of return, right? But but so we need to show by show by doing it on the ground, demonstrate the economics and the environment to kind of begin begin to kind of chip away of the skeptics. Does anyone know? Uh, do our units, do we have climate action plans? Narberth, Winwood. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, all right, I uh, I've got. I'm going to ask one less serious question while we let other people think of the have questions. So, uh, Maddie, you walk into a room, and on a table, you've got whitefish salad, tuna salad. An egg salad, which one do you go for? <laughs> Keep in mind, the person who's making it is in the room. <laughs> I'll, I'll take whitefish salad. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm just pandering to your audience. Here. Yeah, okay. All right, excellent. <laughs> um, does, does anyone have a question they want to ask? I have more, but I want to open. Let's go. I don't know. We have a Leora and then guests first. Robert Maddox, please. Thank you. Um, so I, I have a friend who didn't want people to, he didn't want to advocate for homes, you know, I'm sorry, try to make, be quicker. Um, the utility companies and Pico, Exelon, um, haven't been in the forefront of trying to make, you know, of, of converting to renewables. And um, and I just, do you have any insight on, uh, do you have any hope for the utility companies? Do you, are they at the table in stuff that you're doing? Well, I, I think they're at the table and I, I've met with the, the PICO CEO, you know, and I, I think utilities are, are an interesting place. I mean, utilities are almost where AT&T was like 20 years ago, right? So, um, so, I think utilities are largely distributors of energy now. They're not producers largely, right? There's been a, a disconnect of that, you know? So uh, I think they're still a little bit uh, trying to balance both kind of old energy and new energy. Uh, and, and I think um, they're trying to accommodate that transition. Right? I, I do think that utilities in this state, it still gets 
I mean, let's just call it for what it is. This, uh, this state is a big fossil fuel state, right? Uh, this state is a big fracking gas state, right? So there, there's still the, the politics of it, you know? And I think the, one of the things where we hope to be back conversation with the Chamber of Commerce is to really do kind of a neutral economic study about what is the job dimension about the green economy versus uh, the old economy. You know, and, and I do believe that we can't shut off you know, uh, fossil fuels today. You know, there is a transition strategy, but there needs to be an expedited transition strategy. So, so part of it is kind of addressing kind of the economics of it. Um, but I think PICOs uh, is at the table, and I think that they are trying to accommodate both the new energy and, and old energy. Yes. <laughs> I thank you. So this actually builds off um, Rabbi's question, really bringing it like back to like a micro perspective. Mm -hmm. um, given so, assuming we all see this as kind of a, a moral problem, not just a scientific problem. Mm -hmm. We all are already bought into the science. We all assume that there's a lot of care already. How would you start? Like, if we wanted to take action. 800 people, a building of reasonable size, like how would you prioritize? So uh, within the, the, the footprint of the temple or the, the community? Um, Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't want to answer that question because, uh, as Mark noted, I'm a data-driven guy, you know. Uh, so, I, you know, if you look at the footprint of it, you know, that, you know, is a conversion of uh, your, um, your lighting system, you know, is that an option, right? Is the installation of heat pumps, is that an option? I would take a look. I mean, there are, there are some low-hanging fruit, but I, but I would, like, be... Uh, have someone run an analysis of that. You know, this is on the kind of the, the mitigation side. You know, um, uh, and then there's also the adaptation side. But I, I would look at, you know, I would go through a process of really uh, doing some analysis and data. It may may cost some money, but I think that money is going to get returned over time, right? So that that's that's my suggested approach. You know, so. <laughs> Um, and I'll say for Leora knows this because she actually runs our sustainability team here, but we are just people know we have started the process of these audits of our of our heat seal and our lights and our what we can and can't do and how we can change and um, let's note heat pumps also. Um, um, I want to ask a question because this is on sort of when you talk about the adaptation piece mm -hmm. right that feels more in my wheelhouse mm -hmm. of right the spiritual adaptation the. Um, I actually in in New York was part of a group of rabbis that were were sort of climate chaplains. Mm -hmm. Like, how can we help people come to mourn the loss of a way of life that mm -hmm. right or help us transition? And I wonder what data knowledge you have of when you talk about I'm new to this state, but I do know about fracking, mm -hmm. and I do know about this this idea where one might say, okay, theoretically, I get it. We got to take all of the jobs that are in fracking and we're going to turn them into green jobs so that, right, and there might even be more green jobs making all the stuff we're going to need that's going to be good for the planet and better for society. But 
it's very hard to get people to sort of make that switch or or take the chance of actually losing some jobs to hope for more or do the like what have you found are ways of helping municipalities do that adaptive work in terms of the jobs they mentioned or, or more broadly you know either one is uh, the jobs is the one that sparked my curiosity about it so you know i, I think trying to understand um what are the jobs so there you know I think we make a mistake by saying, well, we're going to have these these pure green jobs in the future, mm -hmm. right? But, but what are the jobs for, for people who have 20, 30 years uh, left in their working career? You know, so what, what are the opportunities to, to retrain? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that um, you and your congregation really get engaged in that. You know, what are the skills for the future that uh, that you can have folks who can, who may be working um, in in terms of pipe fitting uh, for gas fracking uh, that could be adapted for you know photovoltaic installation, for example, those kind of things. And I used to run uh, an environmental workforce program. Does everyone else know what those words mean? I of course know what those words mean. I'm just asking for you. That, yeah, this is so. This is converting. Taking a skill yeah. that people already have in a fossil fuel industry and turning it into a skill that could be used yeah, in, in the future. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so that 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 is, I, I think is one. Just really understand what the where the jobs are going to be made, but also trying to invest in maybe indirectly the 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 skills training mm -hmm. uh, to uh, enable folks to be able to have jobs. You know. So that so uh, you know I think this debate. Uh, has been perpetuated by you know, you're all going to lose jobs. You know the only jobs are going to be for folks who will get trained for this new stuff in the future. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to meet people where they are. You know, and providing the economic opportunities for them going forward. Gotcha. Right. Uh, and, and we also, you know, frankly need, need to understand that this we need to go as fast as we can. We also need to go as smartly as we can. Because it has political consequences, right? So um, the, the 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 yellow vest uh, uh, effort in France was an effort where it got perpetuated when, uh, frankly, the, the French government basically said, "You're all going to feel the pain. Deal with it." <laughs> right? We have to deal with where people are. We have to deal with the pocketbook issues, mm -hmm. right? So we, we, you know, we are actually seeing a shift towards. You know, how about you? I have to be careful how you say a shift towards a little bit of a, a kind of fractious, uh, nationalistic kind of approaches in response to um, a, a cl legitimate climate of it, because we're not meeting people where they are. You know, so that you have um, so in in Ireland right now, there's a big war between farmers. Ireland and Netherlands, mm -hmm. there's a big war between farmers and the government uh, because uh, both in Ireland and particularly in Netherlands, they, they actually Netherlands are talking about a 25% reduction in cattle farming, you know, for a country whose whole history is that, mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, we have to kind of really engage deeply in these issues. And if we don't engage deeply, 
So Netherlands government, I mean, it is going really, really, politically, it's going really bad, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, and so there is a, 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 a political consequence, a really bad political consequence, if we don't deal and don't engage people who need to be engaged. Mm -hmm. So there is that consequence, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, let me just say, it may seem uh, uh, far afield, but... Um, I've been talking to the kind of young people, especially who feel depressed, and this is a real thing. You know, you know, studies show like about twenty-five percent of the young people are really depressed about climate, right? Um, and you know, I, I was having this conversation. It's like, uh, so if, if you wake up every day, so I, I love this thing that these Gen Zs came up with, like, uh, okay, uh, Doomer, right? <laughs> so you know, young people, you know, want to be involved, but they want to be engaged in solution building. Right, and I think that we need to engage and, and engage young people in kind of solution building, because there is there is a real depression issue among young people over this issue. In a recent poll, showed like twenty five percent of young people are depressed over climate, the the, the future of the planet. Right? Yeah. So that so that we that's another area that I think yeah. you can lead. Yeah. You know? so. I'm surprised it's only twenty five. <laughs> Yeah, some Do you have more. a question? Oh. Yeah, let's go. Tilda, please, and then we'll go around. Um, I just actually want to follow up on the causing change concept and bring it back home to us in this microcosm. And so let's just say there's a hypothetical of, yes, there's a lot of people who are really involved and interested here in the synagogue, but, you know, change is hard. And let's just pretend we said, Okay, we're we're all going to go to paper plates now. We're not going to whatever it is. I'm just giving a far far fetched one. How do we help to cause that change to happen? And also building on what you just said, in coming up with whatever solutions we're doing, are you kind of urging us to engage our younger population in coming up with our priorities and solutions? Just want to hear your thinking on causing change within a small group like us. Well, I mean, yes to the last part of your question. I think inviting young people to participate as an equal stakeholder, I think, is, is crucial. You know, uh, you know, and, and I would begin with that. You know, but I've always believed in kind of stakeholder mapping before you set the table, right? And you know, what what are the you know, even among your congregation, you don't all think the same, right? And so what are the different perspectives, you know, and what, what's the underlying issues behind your perspectives? And how do we deal with that? You know, and meaning uh, what's the legitimacy behind that difference, right? And trying to understand the legitimacy behind those differences and set the table based on understanding the legitimacy and what are the commonalities despite those differences, right? And I would do that homework before you get people to the table, mm. right? And I, I'm also a believer, like, if you want to do five things, do one well, build trust with that one thing. Because when you, when you do that one thing well, you bring people along, the rest four go much easier. Because it's that, 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 that interstitial, interstitial uh, uh, trust building is so, more, so important. And I really believe in that. <laughs> Thank you. The point you were discussing about the language of climate change and how it converts into a depressing message. I think there's a leadership role that the synagogue perhaps can fill in turning that message around and without coming across as being naive and really talk about hope and talk about progress. 
and that using things we can do here with measurable progress. But I want your input on the notion of rather than reinventing the wheel, there are a lot of wheels that have been invented that really work. <clears throat> and I think your, your recommendation would be to do them first, do them well, build some spirit behind the whole activity. But do you have any thoughts as to what the local wheels are that haven't been invented mm -hmm. that we could work on once we have good use of the ones that have? So uh, let me give you some, some data first, right? Um, so um, people who have modeled the Inflation Reduction Act um, conclude that it can achieve 80%, I'm sorry, uh, I don't remember the numbers in my head. Um, so it leaves effectively a 10% gap of the U.S. goals of greenhouse gas reduction, right? Um, and the remainder uh, can be addressed through local action and regulation. And let's just leave the local, they just focus on the local action. You know? So a lot of folks who looked at this, and, and I think there's, there's too much of a focus on technology being the silver bullet. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe in that, right? Most people who, who looked at this deeply, it's really scaling up and replicating and adapting solutions that have been done elsewhere, right? And that if we just do that, we would achieve 80% of the necessary remaining greenhouse gas needs, right? So I would just look at what, what's worked, you know, you know, what's worked in a synagogue, what's worked in a municipality, let's scale those up, you know? So, you know, what works in a, in a similar size city in, in Europe or in Africa, it could work here, you know? So there's enough best practices out there to figure out what, what best practices apply to your circumstance, and let's just invest in that, you know, and, and work from there, you know, so. <laughs> Um, let's do, I think we have time for a couple of more. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, this is just a quick follow-up to that. And the things that have worked elsewhere, how much has it been taking, using less versus doing things differently? It's much. It's a much easier sell to people, I would think, to do things differently, assuming it's economically feasible, than to ask people to give up something. Hmm. People don't like giving up. So I didn't know from the data where it's worked, how much is giving up versus alternative methods? You know, I, 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 I think your point is, I mean, if you, if you begin with the solution is you stop doing this, it's just not sustainable, right? It's simply not society sustainable from an all of society perspective. You know? So, you know, I, I can't say off the top of my head and do things differently, but, you know, um, I mean, this is where you have, you have tried and true technology from lighting, right? We know it works, right? Uh, you know, I know heat, there's a lot of things about heat pumps. We know it works. It's, it's really old technology rebranded as something new, right? Uh, so there are a lot of kind of things where we, and, and it's more efficient and it's more cost-effective. You lower your energy costs. It has a major return on investment. So I would begin with those kind of things. You know, I think building confidence is so important. Building trust is so important, you know, in terms of continue to kind of build confidence that there is going to be, that we can do it. It's going to result in less greenhouse gas input uh, uh, impacts, and it's going to be economically viable. 
you know. So I think there are enough of them out there right now to do, you know. So I would do things on what can we do differently, you know, that that checks the box, you know. So you know, it, there's a the way Jewish law works. There's sort of there are there are black and whites and grays that exist at the same right. There are certain things which are absolutely forbidden. Everyone agrees absolutely. And then there's a bunch of things that are like, well, this guy does that and she does this. And there's more in some sources say, they wonder if that's a, uh, in some ways, maybe the sort of approach to uh, climate amelioration is, well, there's certain things that need to just be, as we would say, trafe. Like, you know, actually I had a friend who declared styrofoam trafe in his synagogue as a rabbi. Like he was like bringing styrofoam into the synagogue is like bringing bacon into the synagogue. It is against the rules. And then there's other things that are more in, I'm not, that's not a policy pronouncement, guys. I'm just saying, um, right? Although I have not seen styrofoam in the building, I think since I started here, but the idea is like certain things we say, absolutely black and white, they're done. And then other things are in more of a gray area of what can we use? How can we, how much can we? I don't know if that's a, an effective or useful thought or not, um, but I got to say it. No. <laughs> So let's do, let's take, I think we've got time for two more questions. Um, so not to leave the technology aside, because there's a lot of exciting stuff going on and from the making things positive angle, uh, popularizing and letting people know what those things are, I think is, is probably important. This being true, are there opportunities in uh, some of the disadvantaged neighborhoods in Philadelphia to do some leapfrogging, to bring in some things to really help those neighborhoods jump over you know, things that haven't happened before and, and from uh, refurbishing and, and uh, you know, improving the buildings themselves, um, lots of opportunities for literally selling savings in power usage that can be done now with metering and, and things. Um, so what, what kind of opportunities do you see for that? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and I, in fact, we were just having that discussion today and uh, uh, and meeting with a number of community groups around the city of the last two weeks, you know, so um, I would begin with kind of um, cooling and um, the, the energy demands, you know, so not, not to beat on heat pumps, right, but so the, uh, so the particular almost administrative issue of heat pumps is low-income residents are largely renters, right, and so how do we make how do we figure out the tax credit implementation and convince the owner of that house to uh, take advantage of the tax credit, right? So it may be kind of informational kind of looking at those issues, you know? And then, then there are some innovative, uh, somewhat innovative, you know, looking at um, some innovative cooling options, right? So there's actually some innovation on, on, on solar-based kind of cooling options. Looking, so meeting people where they are. So th those are some of the things uh, that we, we've been uh, thinking about, you know, and I know that this sounds really kind of really basic, right? So the Philadelphia issued its tree canopy plan in response to the heat emergencies, right? But it cannot be installed in Huntington Park, right? It cannot be because there's so many restrictions on the sidewalk in terms of just kind of the, the 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 physical physicality of homes and streets and landscape is like how do you and then you have the gas lines under the sidewalks there is like and so how do we reconfigure kind of the, the street canopies there's real kind of basic stuff that I think we could begin doing right now you know so uh, those are some of the the, the comments and then 
one of the things that I think U.S. interestingly is not really looking at is this idea of microgrids, you know, which is being used more significantly in the global south than it is here. You know, so microgrids really, very very simply, it's um, localized production of electricity and delivering it in a local way. You know, so like in 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 places in Africa, you could have a community as small as twenty homes that are hooked onto microgrids. You have small production coupled with storage to, to kind of deliver energy, you know? So it also makes these communities more resilient. You know, for, I, I was um, on the Silver Storm Sandy recovery team, you know, and it is frankly ridiculous how long it took communities to get electricity. <laughs> you know, and the reason is we have this uh, historic uh, infrastructure of delivery of, of energy, right? So we have, it's built around coal-fired plants built so far away, Right, and the delivery through these trans transmission lines, right? So we have an opportunity to begin shipping that away through this microgrid concept. So I, I think there's an opportunity there to trying to convince the next mayor to, to kind of look at that, you know? Yeah, exactly, yeah. You, you've talked a lot about trust. And so how do you um, navigate these technical issues, like in a way that, like, how do you find trusting partners that help you navigate this, right? So if I go to X HVAC company, they're just going to give me some bid on this thing. How do you, uh, how do you navigate these, these complicated technical solutions as um, just everyday people? Like, how, how does one go about that? Oh, you asked me a very easy question. <laughs> Yeah, I, mean, I, I would say that it's, it's, it's very hard at an individual level. You know, I think you have to rely on kind of evaluation uh, of contractors, you know. So, in fact, we're, we're kind of doing that right now for a heat pump installation at my house. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm relatively new to Philly, and I, I do I trust this guy? So, you know, it's word of mouth kind of thing, you know. Uh, but, you know, I, I want to take it to... Um, a higher level at a community-wide level, right? So what I've done is, you know, I think it's a responsibility of a technical person to translate that, to uh, translate that in a way that recognizes that they are not, the, the technical person is not the decision maker, it's the community that's the decision maker. Now, I would, I would, I would talk to the, the toxicologists at EPA, you know, People don't need to understand epidemiology to know if, if to, for you to convey a certain level of exposure results in this kind of health consequences. And these kinds of cleanup options, what the consequences are. So, I, you know, what I've always pushed as, as technical people at that EPA, you have responsibility to inform people. Uh, but, but there's also a complementary aspect to that is like at some point when, when problems are so complex, you know, at a community level, uh, I believe investing investing in technical advisors to serve on behalf of communities. And it's a real important investment because if you don't have trust in information, you, you really can't get the solutions. You know, and, and I think that, you know, when I was working at the World Economic Forum, I, I would tell the CEO, I was like, listen, if you don't invest the process and time to build trust, you, your solutions are simply not good. And you're just going to get sued. Right. So, you know, I, I really, so those are some of my answers to your question. 
Also on the local contractor level, if you need help, we just ask Ken everything. <laughs> Ken knows all of the people. He's here to help. Um, yes, let's take last one. Sure, please. Very simple question. Thank you. First of all, thank you. It's really been very enlightening. So we all know that we're all we're all part of the problem and we all want to try to be or I think most of us really want to try to be part of the solution. And there's the the, the the solution and the solution and the solution and here. And you talked about education. And so, you know, as a as a synagogue community, a lot of what we do in education is, you know, through example and through exposure and through just the experiences of. Um, so could you perhaps share with us one or two or three things that we could, and maybe we are doing them here in the, in our school or in our community, but just sort of in a quiet little way, like that, maybe the kids do do this, but are they sure encouraged to use, you know, reusable things when they bring their snacks, or maybe they don't even bring snacks. I don't, I don't know, but, you know, small little things that are just by example, it's not some big grandstand project and money and, and, and we could be doing that on the side too, but are there some small things that we, maybe you just sort of notice like we're no longer using water bottles, you know, or plastic water bottles or where we have water bottle fillers in our water tank, you know, in our, in our, or kinds of things that would be, are in our immediate environment or in our homes that kids as well as adults, so just learning, it's sort of growing up with that. You sort of, sort of grow up, you know, like, when I was a kid, we didn't wear seatbelts, but now you wear seatbelts. You just, it's just the way you do it. So are there small little things that we might be doing and inculcating in our kids and in ourselves that just are in our everyday life that, and maybe you can give us one or two examples we can leave on a, on a, with, a with an, in a, an action plan. Well, I mean, obviously there's some basic things around like LED lighting, you know, it, it kind of changes the, uh, the the energy density of a home. You know, that you can do those things. You know, obviously all familiar with kind of um, the recycling choices uh, that you make, right? Uh, uh, you know, even like basic things of, uh, of how many how many vehicle uh, uh, trips do you take? You know, and could you be? And so those are kind of basic stuff that I would think about. You know. At a community level, you know, I think it's a, one of the things that really fascinates me, and I, I am not a behavioral econ economist, but I, I've seen the studies around sharing at a community level their energy footprint fundamentally changes the entire community. <laughs> and it's really, really interesting, right? And it, so when you get a whole community agreeing, it's kind of, a, I have a Fitbit, right? And I'm hooked up with, with like five other people. You know, it, it, it really works as an incentive, right? But I say, like, this person did the most help to me today. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's really interesting that, you know, sharing of information really changes behavior, right? And, and so, and I, the communities have done this, you know, at, at a block level, uh, at a community-wide level, they've agreed to share their monthly energy bills, right? And they, they track it. And it's amazing what happens. You know, people are much more re responsive because they're sharing it with their neighborhood. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a really kind of basic thing, but it, it works. You know, so. We're, we're going to post everyone's <laughs> right before Yom Kippur. It's going to be, it's going to go out. And that's, 
That's really nice. And, and I, the, I'll save this for a sermon for them another time, but one of the geniuses of the rabbis in Judaism is the wisdom that rituals remind us of our power to do something, right? So the ritual of Shabbat reminds us of our ability to, to rest, to stop producing or consuming or to, right? And so rituals of conservation, whether, right, or having the kids engage of these things, right? However much actual impact on the Yom Kippur footprint numbers it will have are important to inculcate our values in people. Um, I want to thank you so much for being here. I, I'll, Rabbi's right, I'm going to end with a, a short, you know, part of why you're here today, it was a scheduling thing, but part of why you're here today is that it's Earth Day and that that's a meaningful thing for us. Um, but I actually think that one of the real nice moments and coincidences is that this is the same week as Yom HaShoah, which is uh, our day of remembering the Holocaust. And the reason, I wouldn't say this on Yom HaShoah, but after I'll say that one of the great hopes that the, the Yom HaShoah and the planet's response to World War II gives for me on the climate crisis is that it was an example of everyone working together to fight evil. And it worked, right? Governments and businesses and people all got together. They decided this is a very important thing. We will change what we do. We will sacrifice when we need to. We will do all of these things to change the world for the better. And thank God they did because we're all here. And so the idea that a level of that collaboration and hope for the future could happen 75 years ago means hopefully it can happen again today. And so thank you for being a part of it and being a part of helping us to realize our own power in this. Um, we look forward to hopefully collaborating with the collaboratory. If you ever want a synagogue involved, you just let us know. Um, and, uh, and thank you very, very much for giving us your evening. We appreciate it. And thank all of you for coming. Uh, we've got a lot of things going on through the sustainability group, um, both uh, actual sort of changes to our footprint and structure. And if, if anyone who's in this room is not already working on that wants to, um, please let Ken and I or Leora know. Uh, also, we have a, a good old fashioned cleanup uh, going on in the summer. Do we have the date for it? I think we are not going to remember right now. Anyways, June 21st, but we will send out uh, stuff about it. We're all going to go together to clean up the park at the end of Remington, right? I've got that right. Okay. Um, and a lot of different things going on uh, that we will hopefully be sharing parts of knowledge and ritual and any ideas we would love to have you as a part of our sustainability group. Thank you all so much for being here. Have a wonderful day.